One of my favorite artists, Myra Kalman, has a children's book entitled Smarty Pants, Pete in School. It's a whimsical story about a girl named Poppy Wise and her dog Pete who loves eating everything. And one day, he eats an encyclopedia and he suddenly becomes incredibly intelligent and well-spoken and he accompanies Poppy Wise to school, but he dresses up as her cousin because pets aren't allowed in school, and anyway, that's all really beside the point. At the end of the book, there's a brief pop quiz with questions like, 1. What is the name of this book? And 2. What is your name? Are you sure? But the final question is, 10. How many mistakes did you make today? Please write your name on a piece of paper and list mistakes made today in detail and send to Myra Kalman. And then she gives her address. I think this simple question alone makes Pete in School one of my favorite children's books. It's such a light and humorous way of pointing out what's actually one of the darkest aspects of the human experience. We all screw up. I mean, is there any feeling more universally known and more universally loathed than making a mistake? In fact, Kalman adds, if you didn't make any mistakes today, I will eat my shoes. And yet, though I thought for a long time about sending Kalman a letter, I had trouble listing my mistakes. I have a strange relationship with mistakes, perhaps not an uncommon one. I prefer to believe that I don't make them, or at least, I like to pretend. When I first decided on the theme for this episode, I thought I'd be overwhelmed with people's stories about mistakes. After all, we all make them. But in truth, collecting stories this week was hard. People don't like to talk about their mistakes. They don't like to relive them. More than one person said to me, I can't tell a story about mistakes. It's too painful. They would rather carry on as though those mistakes never happened. So when I look at my life honestly, I can conclude, as all of us must, that I do, in fact, make mistakes. Some big ones, some little ones. Some that hurt only me, or the more painful ones that hurt others. I never did end up writing Myra that list, but today, for you, dear listener, a list, certainly not a comprehensive one, of mistakes I made in the past 24 hours. 1. Having one too many beers at a Purim party after midnight. 2. Failing to adequately grease my cheesecake pan. 3. Rising a loaf of bread for either too long or too short. 4. Twice giving the wrong reaction to something someone said. 5. Failing to organize my time to complete all my tasks for the day. And 6. Not starting editing this radio show until 10 hours before broadcast. This radio show is, of course, The Second Page, a radio show of stories. I'm your host, Harris Laparoff, and you're listening to WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. This week, we're bringing you stories about mistakes. Our first story is about how you can know that something is going to be a mistake, but for whatever reason, you still have to experience it to believe it. From Kristen Anderson. So one time, I was living in a teepee, and I shared it with two other girls. Uh, we were taking a course to be wilderness skills instructor in Ithaca, New York. Now, all right, we knew you weren't supposed to put shale in a fire, because some has, it's a sedimentary rock, 
and it has all these layers of, um, I don't know, sandstone. It's, it's sedimentary, and that traps moisture and air in there. So when you put it in a fire, it pops, just like popcorn. We knew this, but some things you learn like don't quite sink in. So that evening, we decided we were going to make a fire in our teepee. Teepees were designed to have campfires in them. They have a slight slant to them so that smoke can escape without letting in the rain. And we thought that would be really awesome and very cozy, because it was a cold night. So first we cut out a piece of sod from the ground, lined the sod with rocks, including this big, flat shale that we had found. Where you decided it was going to be a tiny fire, it, nothing was going to happen. It would be fine. So, after some labor with a bow drill, we had a nice little fire. It was tiny. And things were going pretty well, but then just when my two friends left to get more firewood, there was this bang! And the skulls scattered all over the place, burning holes in our sleeping bag, and shards of hot rock went flying everywhere. So I, like, <laughs> kind of freaked out, grabbed our water bottles and, like, doused the sleeping bags um, and called to my friend, We don't need any more firewood, the fire's out. At first, she was really mad. Um, but when she came inside, she saw what had happened and was relieved that I was okay. But um, she was sad that it burned through the bags. <laughs> and we laughed about it. And after that, we like finally learned that you should never mix shale and fire. That story was from Kristen Anderson. Kristen is a senior at Oberlin College living in Seed House this year and is majoring in biology and environmental studies. She was forged in the crucible of Death Valley, tempered for seven years in Anchorage, Alaska, and then came to Oberlin and taught wilderness skills among the wild gorges of Ithaca, New York. She loves swing dancing, ice cream, and making new friends. Our next story about learning lessons from our mistakes from Nora Burson. Uh, when I was in high school, I had the good fortune of being in a private school that had a really excellent arts program. So my freshman year of high school, I took a tie-dye class in which our culminating assignment was to make a quilt from scratch, dye all the pieces, sew it together. Um, and I am the kind of person who likes to really plan out everything in advance. So I had been making all these diagrams of how I wanted it to look and drawing it out and talking it over with my teacher. Um, and I'd figured it all out, the color scheme, the geometry, and um, so it had to, I had to execute it by tying a lot of little dried beans into the fabric with button thread um, in order to make the, the dye resist. So I, I spent hours and hours doing this and then I was ready to soak it all in the, the crimson dye bath. And then I had a lot of things going on. I had classes, I had homework, so I just left it soaking and soaking all day. And I came back the next day to take out the beans and see how my tie-dye job looked. And I was horrified, because as any good co-op cook knows, dried beans, when they're soaked in water, will expand. So they had all burst through the fabric and made dozens of little tears and I was just distraught because I thought my entire project was ruined. So I was sitting in the classroom crying to my teacher who was also my advisor and a longtime family friend so she was used to dealing with my emotional ups and downs. And I was like, what am I going to do? It's just destroyed. And then we thought about it and we realized if I cut out a lot of little brown patches and sewed them on top of all the little tears. The entire design was transformed 
And now the entire quilt was much more interesting than it had ever been before. So this was a wonderful lesson for me as a perfectionist, as someone who in kindergarten, when I was given an assignment to draw a self-portrait, I ended up in tears because it didn't look exactly like I had envisioned and I thought I had failed. This is a wonderful lesson that mistakes, as cliche as it can sound, can be an opportunity to learn and to discover things you never would have realized otherwise. Nora Burson is a student at Oberlin College and is an idealist at heart. Our next story this hour from Hillary Carter. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. My friend Mike grew up in upstate New York near Buffalo. His family was not very well off, and his dad had to be kind of entrepreneurial about supporting the family, basically. And so one of the things that they did while Mike was growing up was his dad ran a used furniture store when Mike was about 12. Mike's dad was able to do this with the help of this guy named Ron, who helped to put up money to start the store and was basically his partner, although he would kind of just walk around the store like he was a big shot and he owned the whole place and didn't actually do any of the management work to run the store. He would just kind of hang out. He was this short, large man who was obviously trying to look slick. He would have, you know, gelled hair and he would always wear a pale suit, and he walked with this gold-tipped cane. Mike was never really sure if he actually needed the cane or if it was just kind of for decoration. In a neighborhood full of people on welfare, he kind of was a big shot. He was friendly enough to Mike. Sometimes he would say to Mike, Hey, Mikey, go get me 20 hamburgers from the McDonald's. And he would pull out, like, a huge wad of bills. Mike said, like, maybe $2,000, and peel off a 20, give it to Mike, and tell him to keep the change. So to Mike, this guy kind of seemed like he had a mistake written all over him. He found out from talking to his dad that he'd actually been mugged twice, because he carried his money that way. Don't you ever find yourself in a room alone with him, said Mike's dad. Why, said Mike. Mike's dad said that in his younger days, Ron had worked for the mob. His organization would buy up kind of older, dilapidated properties, and they had a business front, so they were able to get insurance for these properties. And then Ron's job was to arrange for an accidental fire to occur so that the organization could collect on the insurance. And this was going pretty well for Ron so far. He hadn't been caught, he was making a lot of money. But while he wasn't getting caught for the arson, his luck ran out when he started sleeping with one of the mob boss's wives. So a little while after he started doing that, he got an assignment to burn a building that was fronting as a dry cleaner. There are enough chemicals in a dry cleaner that it was pretty easy for him to go down to the basement, start a fire with a cigarette lighter, and it was going to look like an accident. And he went upstairs to, you know, get back out the front door, and his flashlight catches a glint of something on one of the windows, and this is one of those old brick buildings from, like, the 1870s, so there shouldn't really be anything new in it and he runs to the door he pushed against it and it wouldn't move and he tried again and he pushed really hard and it 
didn't give. It was nailed shut. So he tried kicking the door, running into the door to try to break it down, but it wasn't giving. So he goes to the window, and he knows that's also nailed shut. The window had a grill, so breaking it would have been useless. He looked all around him on the first floor, and the only other window he can see behind him also nailed shut. So from where he's standing, there's no way to get out of the building. He tried the door a few more times, and he still couldn't break it open. So in the middle of his panic, he suddenly remembers that as he was coming into the building, he saw an old coal chute door. But that's in the basement, and he just lit the basement on fire. But he knew the longer he waited to try to go out that way, the less likely he would be able to do it. So that was how he ended up getting out, although not without some pretty significant burn damage on the lower part of his body. This damage interfered with his ability to do certain things, not just walking. I've heard some unpleasant things about him since that time, said Mike's dad. So just make sure that you're never alone with him. I think that Mike's dad didn't just want to protect him from Ron by telling him that story. I think, since they were a poor family and Mike was growing up in a pretty rough neighborhood, that his dad wanted to protect him from getting involved with the wrong people and making some pretty serious mistakes. Hillary Carter is the second page's most regular contributor. Hillary is an Oberlin grad, class of 2009, and former writer for the Dead Here Footsteps and the Semi-Automatic Players. She now resides in Columbia, Missouri. Our next story, from Jerry Laparoff. It was clearly the best decision I had ever made. After about a week of hanging around in Amsterdam, chosen for being the thriftiest destination for flights to Europe that summer, I had my sights set on Paris. I had made any number of acquaintances in Europe's version of Berkeley in the 60s, among them a Canadian couple who had been traveling around the continent in an old split windshield VW bus they had purchased in Spain some months before. I ran into them the day they were set to leave for home, and they lamented that they had not been able to sell the bus at the local car exchange in front of the American Express, and that they were about to simply abandon it on the street. They would take anything for it, they said. On an impulse, I offered them a hundred guilders, roughly $44 at the time. Then I went and got myself two months of car insurance for 200 guilders more, and I was in business. The year was 1978. This was a 1963 bus repainted seemingly by hand in the original colors, blue bottom, white top. It was a car without a country, since it had last been registered in Britain, but had not visited the Isle in a long time. It had migrated to Spain, so it hadn't paid road tax in years, if not generations. It had been outfitted with yellow curtains, to which accoutrements I added the very next day, a foam mattress from a flea market, and the car became my rolling castle for much of the rest of the summer. There were few adventures along the road to Paris, one of which was learning to pump the brakes so they would operate. The most exciting sight was off the highway in the town of Brooklyn, where I found what must have been the Brooklyn Bridge, a tiny hand-raised affair over a canal of equally diminutive dimensions. 
A combi, my Parisian friends, Michel and Antoinette shouted admiringly as I chugged into Place d'Italie. Little did they know. Once during the summer, I got a flat and a mechanic extracted an inappropriately giant truck inner tube from the appropriately small tire. Then there was the time when extracting the key, the entire housing pulled out, spilling its guts all over the floor. From that point on, I demurely kept a towel over this very early version of a keyless ignition. Just touched the two wires together, and off I went. And did I go. Took a trip out to Brittany, where I slept in the bus near the ocean, traveled along the Loire, went down to Carcassonne with an old high school and graduate school friend, but the car misbehaved, dying one night on a rural back road. And here I pause. Because on that back road, this rationalist saw two lights traveling across the sky in tandem, making periodic but parallel, inexplicable, jerky movements, something I have tried to explain away as two VW buses plying outer space or a UFO experience wasted on the wrong person. And so went my summer, a series of voyages around France in the mostly magical VW bus with respites in Paris, drinking espresso, and one day opening Shakespeare and Company for its legendary but not always punctual proprietor, George Whitman. August is the month when the French take their vacations, and so my friends, Michel and Antoinette, were headed down to Bayonne to visit Michel's family. I was invited to join them so long as I slept in the bus and didn't discuss politics with Michel's dad. Michel had been on the barricades in Paris in 1968, but dad was a Gaullist. It was an enjoyable visit, and it ended just days before I was meant to be back in Amsterdam for my flight home. There was to be a discussion of the car before I left Paris, since it would need a home, and Michel had spe speculated on using it as a camping car while I was hoping it would still be there for a future trip. Michelle would need to say her goodbyes, so I left her and Antoinette with plans to meet back up in Paris. And on the last Sunday in August, I headed up the National Dix on my way back to Paris, picking up a Turkish hitchhiker along the route. We were tooling along the road and chatting amiably, when I made a mistake. A half-baked thought crossed my mind, as it often does, which went something like this. I wonder what this baby can do. And the thought transferred itself to my foot, and I floored the bus. It accelerated, coughed, sputtered, and punctuated the sputter with a puff of smoke as I deftly rolled it off to the shoulder. The hitchhiker and I said our goodbyes. I took a marker out of my suitcase and using the white upper portion of the rear of the vehicle scrawled a note to Michel and Antoinette that the combi was dead and that I was in the nearest cafe in the town I had only recently passed appropriately named Majesque. Then I hitched a ride back to town with a German family in a Mercedes and waited. Less than two hours later, I was reunited with my friends and Michelle took charge. She called an auto wrecker and when he arrived, rendered one of the most artful automotive sales pitches I have ever heard. In her presentation, it was a wonderful vehicle with just a little carburation problem. The garageman appraised the vehicle with a studied eye and retorted, Mademoiselle, ce n'est pas une voiture, c'est là. And here he uttered a word which, even in mellifluous French, might not pass muster with the FCC. 
but he offered to tow the vehicle and give me a grand total of 100 francs for it, the equivalent of $18. Gone were Michel's dreams of a camping car and my hopes for wheels in Europe the following summer, but we did get to sit down for an aperitif at the garage and admire the man's considerable collection of Studebakers, undoubtedly the largest in all of Europe. It was not the last mistake of the day, however. We paused at a truck stop for lunch, and a hundred miles later discovered that Antoinette had left her handbag. At another truck stop, my friends called a radio station popular with truckers. The loss was announced, and after a delay, it was announced on the radio that the bag was in the hands of a trucker and on its way to Antoinette. We waited, and it appeared. Unhappily, there was no similar redemption for my VW bus. We returned to Paris that night, and a day later I took a train to Amsterdam and a flight home. About a month later, when the Canadians wrote to inquire after the car, I could not bring myself to tell them this story. father, Jerry Laparoff, lives in Berkeley, California. Since that experience, every car that he has owned, he has managed to drive at least 230,000 miles. His most recent, a 13-year-old Subaru, just gave out at 239,000. In case there's someone out there gasping because there's not enough to spare. I'm just happy living in this dark. So light this crooked candle and I'll give you what you need. Our next story about mistakes in cooking from my Aunt Plout. You're listening to the second page on WOBC 91.5 FM Oberlin College and Community Radio. I don't even remember when I started cooking because I grew up in a family of cooks and there was always fresh food around and it was always... The kitchen was the playground, even more so than even the actual playground. Um, I found myself at a young age being very inspired by food and found it to be one of the most uh, fun and engaging ways for me to make something new that had a really tangible product. Um, Now, when I was starting to cook, I obviously didn't know everything. I still don't know everything when it comes to cooking. It's one of the best places to continue learning forever because there are always new things and always new possibilities. But when I was beginning, I was convinced that there were right and wrong ways to make foods. And I made my fair share of, I'll say mistakes, but I actually think that in cooking that many of the things that one could consider mistakes can be salvaged in some way or another, uh, with the exception of when things get burned. But I distinctly remember being very excited by the flavor of cracked pepper and over-peppered a dish so horrendously that no one in my family could eat it. And I persisted in saying, no, 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 it's fine. You can eat this. I can eat this. Look, I'll eat all of it if you won't eat it. And I remember going through the process of trying to eat this heavily over-peppered item that seemed to only get spicier as time went on. The pepperiness just kind of infiltrated everything. And after that dish was gone, I don't think I used pepper for a good couple of weeks. But at this point, I'm, I'm a firm believer of cracked pepper and pretty much everything sweet, savory, anything in between. I constantly joke that the one thing that would make my uh, travels better was a small... Uh, pepper grinder that I could just kind of carry around with me and put on anything because it makes food that much tastier. Uh, When I started actually like pursuing cooking as not just something that was enjoyable, but like something that you could learn pretty in depth how to do stuff, I was always benchmarked. I was basically in a cooking program and all of the things that I did were benchmarked in some way that like this is the proper and right way to do things. But 
even in not doing something correctly, you still had a useful product that could be used in something. So if you butchered, and I say this in a punny sort of way, if you butchered something wrong or you butchered a product of something, perhaps you couldn't use it for the original purpose, but you could do something else with it. So my first attempts at deboning a chicken were... Oh, I don't even know. There were bad news. But what ended up happening is that if it doesn't look great, that doesn't mean that you can't use it. You just kind of take it and shape it into something else rather than a chicken breast or a chicken thigh. You would take the meat that you'd so horribly mutilated with your knife while trying to make it into something useful and make the dish into something that involved chopped meat or forced meat or something else. So much of the mindset of when I began to think about cooking as a thing that I did was not tied to the things that you'd done wrong, but rather the things that you could do with what you hadn't done well. Uh, food is very much, or at least professional cooking, is way more about um, the utilization of all of your products as opposed to throwing things away, and in many cases... <laughs> Uh, when learning how to do things for the first time, a lot of the products that you may come up with that aren't the most ideal are the ones that you go away or hide away. In food, you don't really waste anything. You figure out new and creative ways to do things to make it work better in the long run. So the month of January was spent, this past month of January was spent teaching and mentoring a friend who was learning how to cook for the first time. And the only warning that was given was don't burn things. Because in my book, burning things or making sure your food is carbonized beyond any sort of edibility is the only way that you can actually mess up food to a point that you just can't do anything with it. I'm, I'm a fond appreciator of Cook's Illustrated, which claims that there's only one way to do something properly to obtain a an ideal result and in many ways I agree with that because there are ways to make things repeatable for all kinds of cooks with all kinds of skill levels with all kinds of uh, tools and products at hand but I do believe that there are many ways to do something and should it not turn out exactly the way you were originally expected you can kind of tweak or adjust or whatever, to make something work a little better. Now, when I mentioned the idea of this story to some friends, they were wary and tried to find different ways to poke holes in my... There are no mistakes when you cook. What happens if you oversalt something? Or if you overcook a starch? And those things are less than ideal versions of the product that you're looking for. But it doesn't mean that it's a mistake that is irreparable. Um... You might not end up with something that you really, really want to eat, but unless it gets to that kind of terrible carbonized state where more is stuck on the bottom of the pan than is coming off on your fork, you can do something with it. So cooking being the greatest experiment that I undertake every single day, I kind of go in thinking, I'm going to make something, it's going to be interesting. Perhaps it's not going to be exactly what I want. I'll figure it out. It'll work. If I make a mistake, I will learn from it, and I will go on and make something else better the next time I have a chance to play around. That story was from Leon Plout. Mayan is Oberlin College, class of 2010. She currently works for Oberlin College as the social media coordinator. Next up, a story from Ada Hetko. Derk was the nicht as bitch or as the kohle. And at the window, ut she put her hole. And Absalon, hem fill no bet ne wers, but with his muth he kissed her knocked airs. Full savily, 
er he were war of this. A back he stared, and thought it was a miss. For well he wist a woman hath no beard. He felt a thing all rough and long he heard, and said, Fee, alas, what have you do? Tee-hee, quod she, and clapped the window toe. You might have recognized that as one of the dirtiest moments in the Canterbury Tales. There's this thing about looking at really, really old art and literature where we become the prudes. We're the one whitewashing things, saying, oh, in the 15th century, they were all, you know, they were all prim and, and, and pretty, right? No, it was this terrible, raunchy world. In this story, the girl, who's married, of course, has two suitors. She's in bed with one of them. The other comes calling at the window. Come kiss me, come kiss me. She goes over to the window. It's dark. She goes over to the window, sticks out her butt. He kisses her butt and then realizes it can't be her because he feels some hair and women don't have beards. It's disgusting. It's totally disgusting. It gives this gut reaction of just, ugh. And it also has this incredible inversion where the butt is the head, is the mouth, is the... It's all mixed up. The power dynamics are all mixed up. The body parts are all mixed up. It's just a, a Picasso... It's just a... Guernica. And it also reminds me of this terrible feeling that I'd have when I was little, and I'd mistake somebody for somebody else. I was terrified of that. One time I was at, this, at the town pool with my family, and there was this kid from my class who I had a crush on who was also there, and he was playing over in the slightly deeper end. And my brother and I were playing in this shallow end. And we were playing this, like, like duck-duck-goose tagish game, um, running back and forth, and, and, you know, ducking under the water, coming back up, and, um, and sort of pouncing on each other to, to tag each other. And somehow, this kid from my class ended up in the shallow end. And I went down in this... I remember coming down in this stream of bubbles and rising back up and realizing that I had a chance to win the game and make my pounce. And so I wrapped my arms around who I thought was my brother, and it turned out to be the boy who sat next to me in class. I couldn't believe it. I took myself out of the water, lay down on a towel. I felt so sick I could barely move. What is this terror of mistaken identity? flipping everything upside down. It's even worse when it's somebody you see in front of you for a while and you see them change into somebody else. My grandmother was sick for a lot of her life and then finally one day went to a doctor after I don't know how many years of, of not seeing a doctor and was put on medication for a really, um, for, for really the first time and turned into a completely different person in front of me. What does that say? Are we to laugh at it? Brush it off? Shake it off? Realize that a kiss is a kiss? An accidental hug is a hug? Or are we supposed to hold on to something? It's almost like centering ourselves depends on having other people stay consistent. But that's never the way it works is it our perspectives change and they get stretched and they get stretched 
time stretches on so far that we can't even look back and see the same thing. Chaucer seems stuffy. Chaucer? Stuffy? One that April with his shoe sota, the draught of March hath pierced told rota, and bathed every vine in switchlecour, of which vertu engendered is the flue. Breathe a little new life in. Maybe these ghosts are meant to be two-faced. Ada Hetko, Oberlin College Class of 2013, makes art. In the spirit of Myra Kalman's question, our final stories this hour are lists of mistakes. Our first one, from Alyssa Zollinger. This is a list of some mistakes I've made in my life. 1. One time I was cooking Pop-Tarts in the toaster oven and I put them in on a plate in the toaster oven, then tried to pick it up. That was the first time I burnt myself. 2. One time in maybe 2005 or 2006, I ran my dad's car up against a sharp curb and blew a tire. I haven't felt comfortable driving since. 3. Once, I thought someone liking me back meant they wanted to date me. 4. When I was really little, like 5, I stopped using toilet paper because I wanted to save trees. That's how I got my first UTI. 5. One time at JCC day camp, I missed my bus because I was reading and I was so scared I couldn't even remember my address anymore. 6. This one's from more recently, a couple years ago. I wanted to make garlic sauce, so I smooshed up a lot of garlic in a food processor. It tasted awful because I hadn't cooked it first. I know better now. 7. Sometimes I think it's a mistake to open my heart to anyone at all, romantically. I'll probably be going back and forth on that for the rest of my life, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. 7.5 Because you can live in the same town and want each other and even be good for each other and somehow still not work out. 8 When I was a child, I got in trouble for doing the same things the other kids did. This is all about third grade, the things I'm thinking of now. Once... I got a girl a pack of plastic rings for her birthday so she'd stop being mean to me. It didn't work. One time I was so scared about getting my classroom wrong in a short hallway after going to the bathroom that I stood in the hall for at least half an hour until someone found me. I got in trouble for that, too. 9. One time I thought I liked a pretty girl's boyfriend because I felt weird when I saw her with him. 10. Once, when I was 13, I accidentally pushed my cousin over in her chair. I say accidentally because I never made a conscious choice to do so. I was just so upset that she'd poured juice on my new sneakers that I reacted. This tore a rift in my family that will never be healed, cutting my dad off from his last blood relations. There's no mistake I've regretted longer than this one.
Alyssa Zollinger graduated from Oberlin College in 2010. She currently lives in Delaware. Our final mistakes this hour, from Sean Hansen. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I wanted to write a narrative about mistakes I've made, but honestly, there are too many. Too many lessons learned, and too many that are just personal, not universal. Too many that ride on hopes that someone will have done something similar. Isolating any one tale just brings out the very beleaguered, trite platitudes I want to avoid contributing to. So inspired by Harris, I instead present my own confessional. A list of ten mistakes, flaws, problems, all running through my head this evening as I try to fall back asleep. 1. In my cynicism towards the section of my high school yearbook devoted to anonymous I wish statements, I may or may not have written, I wish people were not intimidated by my intelligence, before realizing in print that the sarcasm would be completely lost. On an aside, this is easily the hardest mistake that I have to read out on this recording. Oh, I'm so sorry that that ever happened. Two, when I first realized I was gay, I prayed to be changed by God into a heterosexual. This was easier than examining myself any further. I put those feelings away and ignored them. I contributed to the breaking of the heart of a girl I loved, and then nearly never spoke to her again until one day when her childhood friend, Mayan, stepped out of the car beside me during my first day at Oberlin. 3. I let myself hate my parents as a teenager. As a teenager, I expected compassion from them at a time when I was blinded from their own need for compassion. I didn't realize this till I left them. I didn't realize this till they left me. 4. I wrote a very personal mistake here about losing touch with one of my best friends in college, about how I first got to know her, about who she is and who I remember her as, but then I realized that it was entirely too personal. Five, I thought as a newly financially independent adult, if I ate Chipotle burritos twice a week, they would always taste the same. Now I lie awake at night, afraid salt will someday stop tasting like salt. And six, I ate Chipotle burritos twice a week for the first months that I was employed in New York. Seven, I perpetually forget that how I see myself is not how others see me. I perpetually forget that my self-love is no reflection of the love of my friends. 8. I did not interrupt a man on the N88 bus from Jones Beach to the Long Island Railroad when he began saying racist, homophobic, misogynistic things. I was too worn thin to be one more voice in a tide saying that prejudice in any form is inexcusable. I censored myself instead to make him more comfortable. 9. I've forgotten about washing a bowl for so long that it made more sense to just throw it in the garbage than try to clean it. I threw it away. I threw a perfectly good dish in the garbage. 10. I threw up exactly once in a college dormitory, though before I had ever had a sip of alcohol. I was too afraid to wake up my RA, so after a half an hour of sitting on the floor outside his door in pain, I tied up the garbage bag I'd thrown up into and took it to a dumpster in the snow. I forgot that the door that I had left had no card access to allow me back in. I walked in my bare feet through the snow at 3 a.m., trembling in pain. I should have just knocked harder on his door. 
When writing this list, I could not help but notice that each of these mistakes are mistakes that involve regret. Are they still mistakes if I do not regret them? One dictionary defined mistake as an action that's misguided or wrong. As someone who doesn't believe in universal ethics, have I ever done something truly wrong in my own eyes? If I learned from it, then did I do something right instead to help shape my life as I wish? If I've ever done something misguided, hasn't it only served to guide me to this place in time? Staring at the intersections of streetlights on my ceiling, my alarm clock reminding me of how late it has become. I roll over and turn off the light. Sean Hansen, longtime friend and fellow Oberlin alum, is double degree class of 2011. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, where his life was recently ruined by Miley Cyrus and an artist collective known as Cheryl. Oh, whoa, whoa, he, he can't wait to see you again. That's it for this week's episode of The Second Page. To hear the episode again or submit a story for a future week, visit our website, makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. Some of our upcoming themes are language, in transit, missed connections, background noise, and coming home. Once again, details for submitting stories are available at makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash secondpagestories, or on Twitter at twitter.com slash thesecondpage. Thanks to all of our storytellers this week. Thanks to Kristen, thanks to Nora, thanks to Hillary, thanks to Jerry, thanks to Mayan, thanks to Ada, thanks to Alyssa, and thanks to Sean. And an extra special thanks to Sean Hansen, who was instrumental in more ways than one in making sure that this episode saw the light of day. All the musical tracks that we've used this week have been released by their original artists under Creative Commons licenses. Please support these artists. You can find more details on who they are and how to find their music at our website, makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. Thanks to WOBC for putting us on the air, and thank you for listening. I'm Harris Laparoff, and I'll be back next week with stories about language. You've been listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio.